What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Our host, Jada Gomez, is still away, which means that today I'm going to indulge in the darker side of the bustle huddle. Today we're going to talk with Dr. Julia Shaw about her book, Evil, The Science Behind Humanity's Dark Side. We're going to talk about not only why that exists, but why we're so compelled by it. We're going to get answers to why you keep reading Wikipedia plot lines to horror movies that you won't even watch. We're going to talk about why your whole podcast queue is filled with true crime, in addition to the Bustle Huddle, of course. Welcome to the Bustle Huddle. I am Anna Parsons. Jada Gomez is still missing in action, but she will be back next week. Do not worry. But first, let's welcome to the podcast... Christina Ariola, our senior books editor. Hey, Anna. Thanks for having me. Yeah. And I can't wait to talk about evil with you. Yeah. This book is truly a wild ride. I know that reading the book totally changed my perspective on the definition of evil. Well, you read the book in, what, 32 hours? Yeah. It was like 36 hours, something like that. It was definitely like I started it on a Saturday morning and was finished by Sunday afternoon. Um, an accelerated course in evil. An accelerated course in evil. I would probably recommend spacing it out just a little bit more. It's a book about what this idea of evil means and all of these things that we've come to think of as evil. Right. And it's a word that's frequently thrown around these days. It is a word that's thrown around a lot. And I think that's, you know, one of the things that Dr. Shaw really takes to task is that, you know, we need to stop calling things evil because it kind of eliminates a sense of accountability for a lot of the really bad things that happen in our world. You know, instead of just kind of throwing around this blanket term of evil, let's take people to task for, you know, the stuff that is actually being done. And so if they're perpetuating these horrible things in the name of getting more money, in the name of getting more power, then let's just say that because, you know, that's so much more true right, and so much evil, more powerful. Evil kind of eliminates the nuance. It, um, it seems so indestructible that you you don't start breaking down the problems for what they really are. Exactly. And when you call something evil, you're almost kind of saying that there is no way to solve it. Like if something, I think in our in our minds, when something is evil, it's it, it's born that way. You know, you're born evil. Right. It's, it's unchangeable. And that's really a hopeless idea, right? We want to believe in the fact that some of these things can be changed. And that involves changing our idea of what evil means and how we address actions that are perceived to be evil. Well, I'm really excited to talk more about this with you and also to get to the interview because I was there. It's great. You guys are going to love it. But first, let's talk about one thing that's the opposite of evil, I think, the Bustle Book Club. Yeah, the Bustle Book Club. (laughs) So who is um, hosting the Bustle Book Club this month and what are you guys reading? Yeah, so this month we asked uh, Karina Longworth. Ooh, who a is former podcast guest. A former podcast guest, and she also has her own podcast, You Must Remember This. Which um, is excellent. Which is amazing. And she is an author. She wrote a book called Seduction, which came out last year. Um, and both that book and her podcast are sort of about the unknown, forgotten stories of Hollywood. And in the case of her book, specifically about women in Hollywood. So we asked her to recommend a book this month for the book club, 
And she recommended Hollywood's Eve by Lily Analik. And this what is... What a surprise. Yeah, it is. I mean, yeah, it has Hollywood in the title. <laughs> it is well, very on brand for yeah. Karina. And Karina's a LA native too, so... Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so this book is actually a biography meets love letter, meets fan letter to writer Eve Babbitts, um, who was sort of this 60s, 70s, 80s it girl in Los Angeles. But beyond that, she was also a really brilliant writer and just a really brilliant artist and creator. And she wrote all of these wonderful books, technically novels and short story collections. As Lily talks about in the book, a lot of it was just personal essay disguised with, you know, fake names and maybe some different locations. She lived this extraordinary life that just seems too unbelievable to be true. You know, she dated rock stars. You know, she was friends with Joan Didion, who was one of, like, the first champions of her writing. And yet, despite all of this, her writing kind of just went completely underground for decades. You know, it it was kind of overlooked by the literary establishment and eventually went out of print. So what do you think about the resurgence of the popularity of her writing in recent years says about the times right now? Yeah, so actually a lot of it is due to Lily Analik's fascination with Eve Babbitt. So, um, yeah, so as Lily details in the book, she kind of got turned on to Eve Babbitt and she, you know, started researching her and she reached out to her. Eve Babbitt is still alive. Um, So in the late 90s, Eve actually was in a terrible accident where she burned most of her body. And ever since then, she's sort of been in hiding. And so Lily kind of discovered her in the somewhere, I think, in around 2012. It took her about two years to get Eve to agree to an interview. And at that point, she flew out to L.A. They had a very brief meeting. I think it was somewhere under 30 minutes. And at that point, Lily was you know, frustrated. She didn't know if she was going to be able to actually write a story, but she just kept pushing. And eventually she was able to write a piece for Vanity Fair called All About Eve and Then Some. And it was basically a shorter version of this book. It was an introduction to the life of Eve Babbitts. And that sort of just, there was a, the interest in Eve just completely reignited after that profile came out. Her books went back into print. Um, Right now, there's a TV show being developed based on some of her books. And then, of course, earlier this year, Lily Analik released this big biography, Hollywood's Eve. So they say that any good biography of a writer will inspire you to read their actual work. Um, Did this inspire you to read any of Eve's? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I'm dying to read some of Eve's book. Unfortunately, as a, a books editor, my reading schedule is little packed. It's jam-packed at all times, but as soon as I have a free moment, I'm going to pick one up. And I know that you actually yes. yeah, <laughs> read I some make, Eve Babbitt. Mm-hmm. I need to make my public service announcement, which is um, I actually picked up the book Eve's Hollywood, which is a book that's actually a collection of essays by Eve Babbitt herself. So yeah. that is not the book. It is Hollywood's Eve by <laughs> Lily Analik. Yeah. And if you want more information, you can go to bustle.com slash bustle book club. And we have an interview there with Lily that's up right now and some other stories about Hollywood's Eve and Eve Babbitt's. I I can't wait to read it. I'm going to put it in the link in the description so you guys can as well. Yeah, I will say that this book is really not something that I personally thought that I would really enjoy. It's so different from things that I normally read. And I loved it. Well, let's go back to evil. I guess before we dive into the interview... I wanted to ask about your own interest in true crime or books dealing with, you know, 
dark subject matter, I'll say. Yeah, you know, I actually, I don't read a lot of true crime books or thriller books or crime fiction. You know, I do really love horror, but I, I do think that's a little bit different. Yeah. Um, but it's not really, you know, there are some people who that's all they read. They only want to listen to true crime podcasts. They only want to watch crime shows. They only want to read thrillers. And that's totally cool. Um, but that's definitely not me. Um, and so I did have, you know, a couple of reservations about diving into this book completely about evil, but I was completely blown away. It's something that I've been thinking about a lot. And I talk about that in the interview is that it's one of those books that you kind of carry with you. You know, it. this book is one that I'm going to be sort of revisiting and, you know, playing over in my mind for a long, long time, maybe for the rest of my life. Um, and I think especially now, I mean, not especially now. The world has always been a bad place, but it seems like right now there are so many instances of things happening that we could easily call evil. And I think in this book, you will see very clearly why we actually should not call them evil and we should be specific about the harms that are happening. Um, I want to go back to something that you just said that you would replay a lot of this in your head over and over because that's probably a good point to give people a warning that even this interview deals with some dark subject matter with some triggering language. And so I just want to give you guys a heads up of what you're getting yourselves into. Yeah, definitely. Take care of your mind and emotions. Yeah, taking care of yourself comes first and foremost. So we're going to get straight into your interview with Dr. Julia Shaw. But first, we have a special treat for you guys. Usually we do books recommendations with all of the Bustle editors, but today we have only one. And that's because she is Bustle's spookiest, Bustle's darkest, Bustle's very own Gabby Moss. She joined us in the studio to recommend her favorite books that have to do with evil. Cue the spooky music. Do I think of myself as an evil enthusiast? Uh, I have certainly always had a taste for uh, the darker things. Let's put it that way. Um, I think a lot of it is uh, due to uh, I was exposed to the the book uh, Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark at a very very early age. We had a teacher in preschool who played it for us during nap time, uh, which was traumatic but also fascinating to me. And um, I feel like just from that moment going forward, I was like oh, you know, I'm supposed to be learning all this boring stuff about math and birds and whatever, but I could be learning about monsters. And that kind of feeling just never really left me. Uh, as for books, I'd recommend, um, there is a writer named Kelly Link who writes the best spooky short stories in the world right now. Um, she has a few different books. Her most recent one is called Get in Trouble, but every single one of her books has stories that are genuinely scary, stories that are funny scary. Um, you know, she does it all, and she does it all really well. Um, another book I would recommend is called Shallow Graves. Uh, that's a young adult book by Callie Wallace, and um, it is a both well-written and well-plotted book about a teenage girl who comes back to life after being murdered, doesn't know who killed her or what happened, and... Um, sort of has uh, some, some supernatural vengeance powers. I'll leave it at that, but, um, but it's really great. I could not put it down. And um, in terms of real-life evil and horror, uh, I think the gold standard for true crime books has to be Helter Skelter, The True Story of the Manson Murders by Vincent Bugliosi. Uh, he was the attorney who prosecuted the case, and he just, this book 
covers everything that happened. He knows the case inside and out. Um, and it's really genuinely freaky. I read it for the first time, like, in an apartment by myself, and I ended up uh, pushing the couch against the front door. And I also uh, run a weekly newsletter about all topics, spooky, eerie, and occasionally evil. Uh, it is called Spooky Bitches, and you can find it at tinyletter.com slash spookybitches. And now, as promised, Christina Ariola's conversation with Dr. Julia Shaw about evil. So, Dr. Shaw, I finished this book this weekend. I read it probably in, I want to say, like, under 36 hours, which I would maybe not (laughs) recommend to other people. I would maybe (laughs) tell them to space it out a little bit. (laughs) But I I really, really enjoyed it. I liked it a lot more than I thought I would because this isn't really typically what what I pick up. I'm not really a thriller person or even really like a nonfiction person. And so I was really, really pleasantly surprised by how much I learned and how thoughtful it was and how much it inspired me to kind of rethink some of my own ideas. But I am curious about why you wanted to write this book and what you set out to do with this book. Well, I'm glad that you enjoyed it, despite effectively not at all matching my target audience. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But yeah, I actually was hoping to reach people, if you will, like you. And I was hoping to start a broader conversation about this thing we call evil. So why do we use the term? What does it actually mean? And effectively, as I'm sure you uh, realized very quickly, uh, the whole book is a manifesto against evil. And so it's trying to break down what contributes to humanity doing bad things and how all of us are capable of harm. And so it's sort of demystifying this core concept, and it's trying to to have a more rational and empirical discussion around something that is often sensationalized. Yeah, I feel like evil is this word that we kind of just throw out for all kinds of things, you know, from mundane things to, you know, like someone cutting in front of you in line at the deli or, you know, to actual moral atrocities. But why would you say that we should even avoid in our language calling something evil? Yeah, I think it's one of the most practical things that the book calls to is that we just stop using the word entirely so that if if you are tempted to use the word evil, effectively don't and call out people who do use the word. And by call out, I mean, like, ask what they actually mean by it. And the reason why I think we need to stop using the word is that I think that we almost universally use it as a way to distance ourselves from others, to effectively put up this barrier and say, me, the good person, because we're always on the side of you know the good people, or we, we think we are, is calling this other person evil, this person who's so different from myself that I will never try to understand them and I can't possibly empathize with them. And I think that runs the risk of dehumanizing others. And effectively, that in and of itself, that very act of separating us and them can lead to atrocity. So why do you think it's so important that we do try to empathize with people whose actions we might perceive as being immoral? Well, for one, I think that a single action defines a human being. And so I think that we are very quick to write off individuals because they've done something that we consider bad or evil once. Um, I mean, you only need to look at how our prison system works. And effectively, our prisons are filled with people who, some of whom at least, uh, made a bad decision 
in one instance and for, uh, now are sitting in prison for years, possibly for the rest of their life. And that is effectively what we do cognitively as well, is that we almost imprison or attach a label to someone like, I mean, liar or cheater or someone who is, I mean, in a more extreme case, someone who's murdered someone, we call them a murderer. And that's effectively, we then assume that that's their identity and that can capture the complexity of them as a human being, which of course is absurd. And so one of the, the core tenets of the book is to try and understand that even people who've done the worst imaginable things are still human beings and they still deserve our understanding. And if we want to prevent them and other people like them from doing such things, we need to have conversations about them and not just categorize them as a completely different kind of human or as not human at all. And the other thing is, is to, again, that realization that I think we underestimate ourselves and we are all capable of harm and we need to watch sort of at what points we're overstepping our own boundaries and, and look for, for problems. Yeah, and I think it's really interesting that the book actually begins with a chapter called The Inner Sadist, which sort of right off the bat asks the reader to kind of think about their own what is in within them that could possibly be perceived as quote unquote evil. And in that section, you introduce readers to the idea of the dark tetrad, which is a collection of dark personality traits that include psychopathy, sadism, narcissism, and Machiavellianism. But then you say that, you know, despite this ominous name, the dark tetrad, that that might not actually be such a bad thing. And we maybe need to rethink our perception of the dark tetrad. Can you explain a little bit what you mean by that? Yeah, I'm actually going to pick up on my favorite piece of the dark tetrad, which is psychopathy. Um, because I think that psychopathy is weirdly sexy in the sense that I think there's quite a lot of programming that's made where uh, protagonists are uh, or, or we define them as psychopaths. There's quite a lot of literature, sort of the, the bestsellers list, the nonfiction bestsellers list often has some sort of book about psychopaths on it. And I think it's what a way for us right now to sort of give a almost a like medicalized name to a group of people who we don't like or who break the rules. And, and we need to be very careful that when we use that label, we don't effectively, it, it's just in many ways, it's just another label for evil. And it's sort of suggesting that they're innately bad and broken and bad and, and different than us. But with psychopathy, what's interesting is that, I mean, effectively, we're all, as far as we can tell, on a spectrum especially when it comes to personality. And so the dark tetrad looks at what's called subclinical versions of diagnosis. So you might not be a psychopath in that you might not meet all the diagnostic criteria by, you know, as a psychologist might see it, but you might still be higher on psychopathy than somebody else. And so the higher you get, often it means that you're going to lack more empathy and you might be more capable of harm. But it can also be a good thing to disengage and not have empathy all the time. So it's, I guess it's trying to understand both that we, to demystify these, these labels that we often use and also to understand that we need to accept that these sort of negative pieces are also part of the human experience. And it's not about getting rid of them. It's about understanding them and harnessing them for, for good. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. 
Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders, while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Yeah, and I think it's interesting, the idea that not only do we all exist on this spectrum, you know, somewhere in between moral and immoral, but at so many different points in our lives, we move around on that spectrum. And so I did think it was just such an interesting way to introduce this book and really kind of throw readers into the idea that maybe their own perceptions of self have been skewed. Yeah, I think that's probably right. Um, And I think actually even the continuum, so the moral continuum I find even more interesting because not only are you sliding on your own spectrum of how, quote, good you are, so in basic things like are you vegan or are you not? Like are you doing things actively to prevent global warming? Are you sort of, how are you engaging with the world around you and are you a conscientious citizen? But even there, there what also becomes interesting is that the whole spectrum can of course change as well. So what you consider to be moral or immoral behavior itself can change depending on, you know, if you change your religious orientation or you or you change your belief system in various ways. Um, so I, I find it fascinating how, again, we, we have this idea almost that morality seems objective and it's objective in the sense that, you know, my morality is the right one <laughs> is what we seem to think and everyone else is wrong. Uh, but yeah, the sort of ideas around personality and how we get ourselves wrong, I think, are really important conversations to be had. And they're really interesting. And it's it's fun to explore your, your own dark sides. And it also is, I mean, there were so many sections that I wasn't anticipating. So in the chapter called Murder by Design, you actually dedicate a, a fair amount of time to talking about toxic masculinity. Why was that something that you wanted to cover in such detail in this book? So, I mean, as a feminist, I am constantly thinking about how forces of gender work and how sort of our ideas around things like violence are, are formed and how that intersects with gender. And I think a lot of the things that we link with masculinity still today, including accepting that sort of men are, quote, naturally more violent or aggressive, that they're more competitive. Um, and I mean, in even more toxic forms, that they're more intelligent than women or that they are somehow born leaders. I think that narrative is toxic to human beings and not just to women, but also to men. And there's been quite a lot of men coming out recently sort of saying that the way that we've conceptualized manhood is is really problematic um, and sort of criticizing bro culture and those kinds of things. So I think that um, it's, it's sort of like an evergreen conversation, right? Like how do we understand why men are more violent, for example? And that's the context which then I use it is that, you know, if you look at statistics, basically all murder is committed by men. Basically, all crime or the overwhelming majority of crime is committed by men. Now, the real question is why? Is it inherent to maleness or not? And if it's not inherent to maleness, which I don't think it is, because I mean, there's a lot of men who, of course, aren't violent and they, they also have testosterone and all these other things that supposedly make men more violent. Um, then how do we defeat that narrative so that we can change the way people are socialized and change the behavior? For me, what was really important to it is that the way we socialize people seems to have such a massive effect on the expression of their gender identity and that that can really put us in danger and ultimately fills our prisons with men, which I think is a catastrophe. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think when you think about it that way, it also, you know, deepens the point about evil being such an arbitrary word, because you obviously are not going to say that every man is evil because the majority of crimes are committed by men. And I think that that provides a really good explanation and foundation for why we need to rethink that word. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think sometimes the narrative around sort of toxic masculinity is this idea that women are using it as a term to say that men are bad, but that's at least not how I use it at all. It's sort of suggesting that the way that we socialize people is broken and we need to be very careful that we don't excuse things like violence by saying, well, that's just how men are. Yeah. And you talk a lot in this book about how the way we're socialized is proven to be in a lot of ways, incorrect or contrary to our best interests. And in one of the sections where that's, you know, most clear is in the section on creepiness, um, (laughs) which is where you kind of describe these series of studies in which a group of people were presented with a number of pictures, some of which I believe depicted Nobel laureates and some of which depicted people who had been convicted of serious crimes. And correct me if I'm wrong in explaining this study. But the people were actually shockingly awful at, you know, identifying which of the people were, you know, supposed to be, quote unquote, creepy. Um, And there were, I think, a number of other studies that you mentioned where the results were pretty similar, that people kind of had this idea about what was creepy that didn't necessarily correlate to, you know, anything real that would indicate that something someone is dangerous to you. So can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I think uh, so. I, I didn't set out to write a whole chapter on creepiness, but it just sort of it, it's it's funny how a book sort of grows and develops and you find that you have a lot of things to say about things that you didn't expect you would. And then <laughs> other sections where you have a lot less to say, you know, serial killers, really not that interesting, uh, at least I think, because there's such an like exceptional case. And they, to me, at least, it's not an interesting narrative. So much more interesting is, you know, how do we perceive threat? And at what point is something creepy? Or at what point do we assume that someone is capable of evil or quote, looks evil? You know, sort of the villain in a movie. Like, what do those people look like? And is that based on anything? And I, you're right, the Nobel laureate study is a fun one, where um, effectively what we see in that study, which is the same thing that we see in most of these studies on trustworthiness ratings and on ratings around creepiness, is that we're like 51% accurate, 50% being chance. We're like, we're a tiny bit, tiny, tiny bit more than chance, uh, good at detecting that something might be dangerous about someone, but it's so close to chance that we shouldn't be relying on it nearly as much as we do. And I talk in the book as well about how that it can take us. So our intuitive assumptions about whether someone is to be trusted, that they can really be damaging as well to people, for example, with mental health concerns, people who behave in ways that we don't expect, people who are from other countries, for example, who maybe we aren't used to the way that they look, the way they behave. And it sets up our sort of basic animal creepiness and radar because it's different and we don't know how to interpret it. And so we avoid people and we ostracize them and we build walls literally and socially between us and them. And, uh, and, and that can lead to really horrible situations where I think it can lead to things like racism as well. So it's, it's breaking down that gut feeling and saying, you know what, it misfires so much. We need to be very careful that we're not relying on it when we shouldn't be. Yeah. And like you said, that so often manifests as racism, classism, ableism, instead of actually, you know, registering in our minds in any way that could protect us from danger. Um, you know, are there theories on how to change this on, you know, how people can be better at detecting what is dangerous to them? 
I think, I mean, for one, the pro- part of the problem is that our intuitive ass- assessments of creepiness often happen before any higher cognitions or higher thoughts kick in. So sort of the so part of this research is sometimes referred to as the thin slices research, which is sort of this idea of like first impressions, basically, is that you have less than 10 seconds to assess whether you trust this person or not, which, you know, in a sort of ancestral environment is sort of based on probably that sort of fight or flight, like, do I run away from this person or should I stand here and engage with them? Are they dangerous? Um, but the problem is that we then often rely on that intuitive assessment, which isn't really based on anything except for the person maybe acting abnormally, well, or overtly threateningly, but let's assume they're not doing that. Um, then we just need to be careful that in the next sort of minute or two or hour, we then are able to override it. And I think the problem is that sometimes people just say, oh, no, no, my gut, my gut feeling is, you know, the, the most important. And I just know. And just when you think that, stop yourself and say, what am I basing that on? And not just a feeling. And you need, and if you are going to look for evidence of that, make sure you're looking for, you know, what the person has actually said or what they've actually done and not just uh, they feel a bit off. So I guess that's the biggest thing is just being conscious of this bias and not relying on your gut. Yeah. And once again, really kind of reconfiguring ourselves and how we feel about our reactions to things and our own, you know, moral continuum. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, the creepiness. You can also decreep yourself, which I <laughs> have sort of a effectively when you read it, you might see yourself in some of the interactions that go, ooh, turns out people think that's creepy. I should yeah. probably stop doing that. <laughs> that definitely happened to me. Um, <laughs> it is absolutely a fun read. It is very conversationally written. Um, and there's also, I learned so many just like interesting little things. In the first chapter, you actually kind of like describe the roots of what I call hangriness, which is when you get angry when you're hungry, um, <laughs> which I definitely like absolutely happens to me. And all like my friends joke about it. My boyfriend jokes about it. And so like I sent them that section and I was like, guys, this is like proven by research. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, and that was important to me. So I, um, in my teaching as well as in my, so as a university t- uh, lecturer, I also, I, I find that it's really important to come up for air is the way I sometimes describe it. So I think you can't just be in the darkness the whole time and sort of talk about how terrible everything is and everyone is capable of all these terrible things. I think that's ultimately the things that are important and interesting and possibly some of the most important things to discuss as humans. But you can't do that for a whole book straight and keep people engaged and not and and willing to continue that conversation. So I, I certainly tried to construct the book in such a way that you have sort of a lighter section and then a darker section and then a lighter section and then a darker section. That it also helps to not read it in 36 hours. <laughs> yeah, no, definitely space it out a little bit. It, you know, I think it also you just maybe need to step away from it and think about it a little bit and then go mm. back and read the next section. Um because I do think I I've taken more away from it in the days since, you know, I've been, it's been on my mind, even just sort of in my everyday, just the things that I do every day, I've been kind of thinking about some of the things that you talk about in this book. And so I do think it's a book that, that maybe you need to savor a little bit. I don't know if that's the right (laughs) word, but. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, that's a good word for it. I hope people are savoring it and enjoying it. Yeah, so I read that this has actually been optioned as a TV show by NBC. Um, it has. Yeah. Do you have any details on that or any idea, you know, how you would turn 
evil the book and to evil the TV show? Uh, so it's the documentary rights that we're working on, but we're in early stages. So we'll see uh, what exactly that looks like. Um, but yeah, I mean, hopefully it would be similar to the book, exploring some of the science and some of the scientists in the field of sort of fields of research related to this thing we call evil and trying to visualize some of these thought experiments and the moral dilemmas that I also talk about in the book and that affect all of us. So again, questioning our core humanity, questioning, you know, who am I really and what am I capable of and how do we get through this and hopefully learn and become more constructive human beings and help each other be, you know, the best we can. Um, I know it sounds a bit corny, but ultimately I am sort of an optimistic nihilist. Well, it is it is a very optimistic book. (laughs) I mean, the whole basis is that, you know, if we maybe rethink this, then maybe we could create a better world for ourselves. Yeah, fair, fair. (laughs) It sounds funny to have an optimistic book on evil, but yeah, (laughs) it's probably right. (laughs) Amazing. Well, thank you so much for speaking with us, Dr. Shaw. It was incredible to talk to you about this book. I feel like I have so many more things to think about and I feel like it's really just changed my perspective on things. Fantastic. I'm so glad you liked it. And thanks for the chat. Of course. Have a wonderful day. You too. Bye. As always, thank you so much for listening to The Bustle Huddle. If you've made it all the way to the end, we love you. I just want to say it. I love you. And you know what can make me love you even more? Leaving a review on Apple Podcasts. Every review counts. Good, mediocre, bad. I mean, we'd prefer the good, but we'll take what we can get. So yeah, go do it. I would, I'd be really grateful. Um, this podcast was produced by myself, Anna Parsons, and Michaela Heck, with some love, editorial guidance from Roseanne Salvatore. We thank Christina Ariola as well for her contributions to this podcast, which are many. Please listen to us wherever you get your podcasts, be it Apple, Spotify, Stitcher. There's so many options these days. We just want you to listen to the Bustle Huddle. You can also write us at huddle at bustle.com. Thanks so much, and we will see you next week. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. Auto Trader.